Для охоты на лося лайка не должна быть слишком агрессивной. Поведение собаки очень специфично. Она не бросается на лося, не пытается его укусить. Она бегает вокруг, лая на него, не агрессивно, даже взвизгивая, производя звуки достаточные, чтобы привлечь охотника, что она нашла лося. Остается только подойти и стрелять. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. Today's podcast guest is Vladimir Bedegovoy. He is a Russian uh, wildlife biologist who worked both there and emigrated to the United States, where he was a wildlife biologist here. He is a Leica dog breeder and an author on his interest with Aboriginal hunting dogs of Russia. I'll have a link to some of his books if you're interested in purchasing one in the show notes. That was him obviously speaking in the intro. I love languages, I love uh, regional dialects, I love accents, so I thought it'd be really cool to have a little piece of him speaking in his native Russian tongue, and he's talking there about how the Mansi people of the Ural area of central Siberia, how they hunt with their Leica dogs. And we're gonna, obviously gonna hear all about that in English throughout this podcast, which is, that that's what is awesome on this episode. There, there's a handful of things that are quite profound. Um, his experiences of growing up in World War II, his experiences in communist Russia, and his experiences deep in the field um, with these Mansi people, all of which is incredible. That music in the intro is supposedly some traditional Monsi music. I kind of sampled it off of YouTube. Uh, it seemed to be like field recordings. Um, I'll also have some links to that. Before we get into this one, I want to say a huge thank you to mine and Vladimir's mutual friend, Alex Kurashev. Um, I met Alex pretty recently. He is a Leica uh, hunter and um, I met him on a recent hound hunt and he told me about Vladimir. And when I heard that Vladimir had lived with these, uh, this tribe, um, I wanted to hear all about it. Now for this episode, I tried something a little different. Um, Vladimir didn't quite tell like an, a little story that I can isolate. It's more like the whole podcast is a story. Um, also, because of his very thick accent, I found myself uh, repeating him often just to make sure I understood clearly uh, what he was saying, what we were talking about. So I decided instead of kind of having the normal with the podcast where I have a little story with some sound effects behind it, I decided to, to put some sound effects behind the entire episode to kind of give it the vibe that um, perhaps we are sitting by the fire in a Siberian cabin and I am with this 
man, Vladimir, who is 88 years old, speaking about his life story. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who's helping on Patreon. We've got some new folks. We've got Kenneth Giles, Nigel Davies, and Carrie Shepherdson. Thank you all very, very much. And at the highest tier, we've got Jess Paget, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, Ann Stanley, formerly of Pyramid Metaphysical Store, Diana Gonzalez, Earl Suter, our caving buddy, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jamie Nudd, my old filmmaking buddy, James Mann, Jeff, Leslie Peterson Cohen, uh, Michelle Alderson, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Goechner, Steve Childs, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, Waterlight, the working class woodsman, and everyone at the lower tiers, thank you so much. It definitely helps to keep this thing going. Um, my account is patreon.com forward slash our numinous nature. So for today's reading, I wanted to read um, from one of my favorite books that I've read over the past few years, which is Dursu the Trapper, a memoir of the Russian explorer Vladimir Arsenev. And this takes place in the early 1900s. Uh, Vladimir Arsenev was on a natural history expedition across Siberia all the way to the far, far, far east and to the Sea of Japan. Now, looking at a map, um, some of the places that Vladimir talks about are Perm. I believe that's when he's talking about where he was teaching or where he went to university. And the Ural Mountains or the Ural region, that's when he was living with the Mansi. Now, that is considered Western Siberia. So it's not even quite central it's obviously very, very far east from Moscow, but you know Russia is so enormous that it's really Western. Now, when I read from the book about Vladimir Arsenyev, Dursu the Trapper, that takes place on the far, far, far east. So why I wanted to read this passage was because Vladimir talks about this um, cultural law amongst the Mansi, which is if you are out hunting, you can sleep in one of their cabins because most families or hunters have multiple cabins because it's such a vast landscape. But there was etiquette, very, very important etiquette to uh, what you do when you stay in someone's cabin. And when Vladimir said that, I immediately recalled a passage from Dursu the Trapper. So e even though it's so far across the country, there's this same woodsman etiquette in Western Siberia, and in Eastern Siberia. Now, a little bit of extra background information so this passage makes sense. So this is the memoir of explorer Arsenyev. And he is being guided, his party is being guided by a man named Dursu, who is an indigenous hunter of the Gold tribe. So he's often re referred to as the Gold. They become incredible friends, and there is an incredible masterpiece, a cinematic spectacle of a film by Kurosawa, um, filmed in the 70s, called Dursu Uzala. And it's available on YouTube, I believe, or online. You can watch it for free. It is, it is truly a masterpiece, visually stunning. Unfortunately, a movie can only go so far, so it doesn't have any of the natural history elements that the, the memoir has. So I highly recommend reading the book. 
For a couple of hours, we marched along the trail. Little by little, the coniferous forest became mixed in broad-leaved trees more numerous. Poplar, maple, aspen, birch, and lime. I wanted to halt again, but Dursu advised us to go on a little further. We soon find hut, he said, and pointed to some trees from which the bark had been cut. I understood. It meant that in the neighborhood, there must be something for which that bark was wanted. He pushed on and in about 10 minutes saw a small hut on the bank of a brook, rigged up by some trapper or ginseng hunter. I looked round. Our new friend repeated that a Chinaman had passed that way a few days previously and spent a night in the hut. The ashes of his fire, beaten down by the rain, the pile of grass that made his couch, and an abandoned pair of old gaiters of the coarse blue material locally called daba were clear evidence of that. I had by now realized that Dursu the Gold was no ordinary man. Before me stood a tracker. It was time to feed the horses. I decided to take advantage of the opportunity to lie down in the shade of a big cedar and dropped off to sleep at once. In a couple of hours, Olientev awakened me, and I looked round. I saw Dursu splitting firewood and collecting birch bark and stacking it all in the hut. I thought at first that he wanted to burn it down and started dissuading him from the idea. Instead of replying, he asked me for a pinch of salt and a handful of rice. I was interested to see what he was going to do with it, so told the men to give him some. The gold carefully rolled up some matches in birch bark and the salt and rice each separately in rolls of birch bark and hung it all up inside the hut. He then started packing his own things. You'll probably be coming back here one of these days, I suppose, I asked him. He shook his head. So I then asked him for who was he leaving the matches, salt, and rice. Some other man, he come, answered Dursu. He find dry wood. He find matches. He find food. Not die. I well remember how struck I was by this. It was wonderful, I thought, that the gold should bother his head about an unknown man whom he never would see, and who would never know who had left him the provisions. I thought how my men, on leaving a bivouac, always burnt up all the bark left at the fire. They did it out of no ill will, but simply for amusement, to see the blaze, and I never used to stop them from doing so. And here was this savage, far more thoughtful for others than I. Why is it that among town dwellers, this forethought for the interests of others has completely disappeared, though no doubt it was once there? The horses are ready. It's time to be off, said Olientiev. I agreed. Yes, it's time to be off. March. And I gave the word to the men and led off along the trail. Okay, we're in Buchanan, Virginia, Buchanan area. And it, this it looks like it's the foothills of Appalachia? Yes, it is next to Jefferson National Forest. So one of the main reasons that I'm so excited to talk to you today is over the past two years, reading lots of different books, mm -hmm. I've come across one of the best books in the past few years, which is Dursu the Trapper. Okay. Are you familiar with Dursu the Trapper? 
No. So it is the story of, um, it's the memoir of Vladimir Arsenev. Who oh, is yes, yes. The famous Russian explorer. Well, I'm well familiar with this name and since childhood I was reading his books. That's what I would have thought. I guess in Russian they probably have a different title. In, in English it's Dursu the Trappers. Dursu Uzala. Uh, yes, the, in Russian it is pronunciation is close to probably to original one. Dersu Uzala. <laughs> okay. And so that story is incredible. It's the early 1900s. It's a Russian explorer coming from Western, you know, the European side of Russia, traveling all across Siberia, yes. all the way to the Sea of Japan. Mm -hmm. He's be becomes incredible friends with Dersu, who is yes. a, of the gold tribe. Yeah. And uh, the entire thing is um, a scientific exploration of the natural history. Mm -hmm. And you get to read about all the different cultures of people mm -hmm. that they come across. And uh, when when our mutual friend Alex told me a bit about you, I was like, it's almost like you have lived through a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. So where let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? And then you, were, you, were you not a zoologist in Russia? Yep, I was a biologist in Russia. Okay, so where were you born? And then talk a little bit about your biology work. Okay, I was born in St. Petersburg, Leningrad at that time. And when World War II began, when Germans attacked, my mother, sister, and grandmother were evacuated to the east. And this is how my childhood I spent very far from big cities. It was a rural area on the Kama River, beautiful forests, wonderful nature. And this is where I grew up, actually, as a result of war. So it ironically it turned like a benefit to me. <laughs> so how old were you during World War II? When were World War II ended, I was 10 years old. Okay. I remember very well all those um, starvation, deprivation, fear, mm -hmm. and regular reports in newspapers that Soviet troops retreated on the prepared positions. And we were expecting to be killed, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it didn't happen. After Stalingrad, things turned better. Allies, and I remember newspapers of that time. I was already in school reading, and my mother talked to us a lot about what's going on. So we saw newspapers, headlines, like Americans and Russian soldiers hug each other at the Elba River, and the British, French, in particular, British and American troops were friends. Mm. It was wonderful, wonderful time. At that time, we thought it would be forever this way. Mm. So we had very good feelings about that part. And it was, <clears throat> we, we were eating American foods mm. because we were starving, but there were a lot of what is now called spam. Yes. So it was life-saving products we ate. Mm. We had our own potatoes, but 
Spam was a good addition. You, did you grow potatoes in your yard? Oh, yes. It was for survival. Not only potatoes. We had a goat for milk. We had a pig. Mm. Eventually, but one period it was very, very bad. We were starving. Do you, and you remember that? Yes, I remember that time. Can you describe it a little more? Oh, <laughs> yes, I remember the worst time. It was barely, we barely had any electricity. Hmm. It was only one period when power was on and very dim electric bulbs. It was terrible, bad news from the war zone, from front line. And my dad was working in Leningrad. He had never been on the front line. And I remember our food was very poor, like gray flour, mm. added some hot water, mm. a little bit salt, and this is your food. It's period. like gruel. Yes, like it gruel. was your food. It was your first serving, a second serving, and the third one for dessert. Only this, mm. nothing else. And uh, it was shortage in everything, actually. And then the American aid came in the form of canned food and pork, mm. which American anchors on TV called horrible. Mm. For us, it was wonderful, not mm. horrible. We liked it. So it helped a lot. Wow. How far were you from the fighting, the war front? Pretty far. Like hours and hours we away? We were in Urals, Excuse close me? to Ural. Ural. Kama River. Okay. The Kama River, and it was Udmurtia, a province mm. or republic, ethnic name, Udmurtia. Mm. In the past, uh, Russia, they were called Votyaks. But in Russian language, this name sounds derogatory, so they changed this name of this nationality mm. to Udmurtia. This it, is Udmurtia? Udmurtia. Udmurtia. Uh -huh. Udmurtia. This is how these people call themselves. But they're nice people, just like, not different from Russian. All speak Russian. It was like <laughs> minority deep in the East. How did your, why did your mom choose that area to move? How she did didn't she choose. Okay, she did didn't choose. There? We were evacuated. Okay. I remember like uh, the war was coming. Uh, Germans were approaching it. We left Leningrad in the last truck. The last truck? Uh, yes, open truck. We were covered with blankets. I was then five years old. Mm -hmm. And my sister was two years old and grandma and a lot of other people were in the truck. Mm. being evacuated mm. and I remember very strong wind because the truck was driving fast to the east mm. away from Germans and it was all day driving then we were unloaded then we were moved reloaded into railroad car it was not a passenger car but people were in the just Cargo. Cargo. And, and the train was pulling us 
overnight, and suddenly trains stopped. We were told to unload. We went in woods, nearby woods, because German airplanes coming. All lights were turned off. And we heard uh, German planes were roaring engines in the air. It was dark. And for me, uh, because there was a little boy, it was quite impressive and, mm. and in a sort of adventurous. But of course, I didn't feel the death at that time because I didn't see it. Mm. But the time passed and we were commanded to go back. Did you sleep in the woods that night? No, we were, it was just lasted maybe an hour, half an hour. Then all people were told to go back in the car, in the train, and we continued to travel. And then they came to destination was Magnitogorsk. It is a industrial small town or city, I don't know how to call it. So we were unloaded, it was prairie, desolated, looked empty around. They cooked some oat, mm. oats on the bonfire, mm. and the oats burned. It was very tasted, very bad. Mm. At that time, we still didn't starve. We were just from Leningrad. They remember that I didn't want to eat that poor meal. Mm. <laughs> My mother was angry. Told me that told me that there will be nothing to eat soon, mm. <laughs> and it happened indeed. And then eventually, yeah. we settled in Murtia. Now, my father found a job there. Okay. Yep. He was a, a big boss on a railroad station and a, a river port, mm. so it was industrially critical, important point locally because some ores, coal, any, any products, even grains, were reloaded from river to railroad, from railroad to rivers. So it was now what did you say? You said ore, coal, and grain? Uh, different things so it was just industrial life. You industrial know, it life. was a big railroad stations and the railroads were exceptionally critical in Russia. At that time in particular, there were no cars and highways at all, but railroads were absolutely critical. And of course, the river with barges, and it was quite navig navigated by vessels. And it was very important, particularly in, in wartime. And so you guys were safe from the war front, but the hardship that you all felt was was the privations of food. The yes, it was because uh, everything for front, everything for the army, mm. and uh, people should work hard. Everybody, it was just literally in propaganda, and actually, and everybody realized how important it was. So, all people worked for the army for front for the war, mm. and. Uh, it there was slogan all for the front all for the front yes mm. and it was so mm. it was very interesting time and uh, as i recall now and when the victory came it was wonderful too uh, i attended the school our teachers were 
either women or uh, people disabled for some reasons, but we had good teachers. They were teaching us everything in the school. And then a break, we run on the schoolyard and we're playing ball or something, then back to classes. And the railroad was passing by, very important, important railroad. Mm. So transportation was all the time, passenger and other trains. And uh, I remember when victory, uh, Soviet troops were returning back home. Mm. It was a victory. It was very joyful time. Mm. Despite all hardships, everybody was extremely happy. And I remember the soldiers, we were run towards the train and soldiers were waving for us, greeting us, but there were no stop, it was just passing by. Mm. And some of the soldiers thrown something as a gift for us, trophies from Germany. Um, those were pens, mm. writing very fancy, good. We never saw such beautiful pens. Mm. Came to school back and teachers were surprised. The, like they were kind of throwing the spoils of war? Yes, it, just, it was war. Of course they took from Germany whatever they could. Yeah. And um, So you had this fancy pen that you brought to oh, school? Yes, yes. <laughs> and one thrown cards, playing cards. Mm. Full set. Okay. We, we grabbed everything and came to school. And, and the teacher discovered the cards were with pornography pictures on the back. <laughs> All kind. Of course, they were confiscated. <laughs> oh, man. Well, so it, it soldiers sounds... Soldiers were good people, but <laughs> just like, I guess, any soldiers would do so, too. <laughs> of course. Now, you were saying that during this hard period, your escape was nature. So can you describe that? Like, what... What what were the woods like? What animals did you have out there? Ah. <laughs> what, what was your relationship? Okay, to it is an excellent piece of nature in that area. It, well, typical hard uh, hardwood, oaks along the river, floodplains, pine, birch, spruce, fir, aspen, quaking aspen, which is not growing here for the north. And a lot of wildlife, of course, squirrel, uh, moose, wolf, because uh, all the hunters were sent to fight. The wolves reproduced and thriving. Wow. And uh, of course, typical central Eastern European animals, like, uh, as I mentioned, roe deer, moose, fox, uh, Two species of hair, mm. uh, gray hair from the plains and white, similar to shoe, snowshoe hair. And it was wonderful. In the river with good fishing, and as a boy, I enjoyed angling, of course, and other methods of fishing. So it was wonderful. Were you able to hunt as a kid? No, I was like too little first, mm. but I was able to catch fish, oh, nice. which I did. And uh, the, I, we also enjoyed playing. Uh, suddenly, a train loaded with 
damaged tanks from the front line came. A lot of tanks were unloaded on the railroad side, right in the woods. They were Soviet tanks, German, different sizes, and of course it attracted our attention. It was just maybe four, five miles from our uh, community where we lived, this small rural community. So all the boys vanished. They were on tanks. And we played there, we toured turrets, some were turning. <laughs> so we enjoyed this turning and it was great joy for us. And a lot of empty shells, mm. some with bullets, and sometimes the whole tank shells no gone, way. which were big, this size. And they were live? I don't know, we didn't mm. know, but we found them. Mm. And uh, all the boys from my bodies, they realized they should be safe. Mm. And nothing, nothing exploded. Everything was safe indeed. But we unscrewed on the back of the shell and shook off the powder. <laughs> and we realized that if you bring match, it is a wonderful firework. So we played with this. The powder was a small little squares. So we put them in a sequence, different things, and then bring fire, and then it will show you. You'd make a pattern of fire with the yes, gunpowder. Yes. And of course, our pockets were full of empty shells. Wow. And we came in school, and the boy was working with bulging pockets, and the teachers confiscated it. He told me, come up here and load it, your pockets, put on the, on the table a lot of shells. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what they did with the shells, but everybody had in his possession a lot of this sort of equipment. Man, I mean... So it was interesting. And then one day, another train came and all this metal was taken away. But, mm. but it stayed there for a few months and we mm. enjoyed it tremendously. That's funny. Obviously, I did not grow up around war. Um, and yet, there's so many similarities. Like, me and my male friends in the suburbs were lighting firecrackers, you know, uh, lighting things on fire. Um, mm -hmm. the, the construction workers <clears throat> who would leave their machinery around, me and my friends uh -huh. would get inside of that machinery and try to drive oh, yes. it. It's like boys have always kind of been doing the same thing for forever. Yes. Um, now, how did you, what or when you became a biologist, what was the work that you were doing? Um, it was kind of become a biologist. To me, it was like a nature, natural call. <laughs> a natural call. E even a little boy, I always brought some bugs and little vertebrates and invertebrates in jars and boxes and bugs home and try to keep them, watching them. I tried to feed them, but of course I was ignorant. Some of them died because of wrong food or no food. <laughs> and I raised a crow chick. A what? We, a crow. Yes. A crow? Yes. Oh, a, a Which crow became chick. very tame and followed me like a dog. And my mother didn't <laughs> like it because I stole some tasty food from my crow, like a piece of pork fat which is destined for us, not for Or a chicken egg, which crow enjoyed a lot. So it was my 
childhood biology. And then adults asked people, boys, what are you going to do? And some told they wanted to be airplane pilot or steamer driver. So it was sort of glamorous. good. But I told them that I will be a beetle catcher. And everybody laughed at me because they told me that you will not make money catching beetles. <laughs> so, so, let's to be, so that be. But uh, when time came to choose a college after graduation, I quite seriously chose to go to become a biologist. And I became enrolled in, in the good college in the city of Perm. It is an old Russian city. And I was very lucky because teachers, my teachers in the college were better than in Moscow, in fact. Because in Moscow, after all those Stalin's purges, ideological, mm -hmm. a lot of mediocre people took positions of professors, etc. In the cities? In Moscow. Yeah, in the city. But in Perm City, where I was getting my education, were exiled, old, high-quality teachers, still because they didn't care much to kill and oppress people far from Moscow in the East. So the, the teachers that let the, the most educated that were able to escape yes. went out to these remote exactly. areas and you were yes. taught by them. They were even, some were even kids of nobility and mm. uh, Russian lords and uh, Dorian. What is that? <laughs> they were not Dvoriani. They were not lords, but they were descendants. Okay. At least some of them. And they they told me about the, everybody. So there were people who witnessed life before communists took power. Mm. So I was lucky. I, now I think of it. So I got, in my view, pretty good education in biology. And uh, found a job in, they call it, Uralian branch of Academy of Sciences mm -hmm. of the USSR in Sverdlovsk, which is now Ekaterinburg. Now, you said Uralian? Uralian? Ural, Ural Mountains. That, Uralian Mountains. So that's a region? Yes, it is a, a large region. During war, it became highly industrially important. Because this is where Russians made their tanks and shells and everything to fight Germans. Because of Eastern industry was under occupation. So what they do, they evacuated the whole factories, the whole plants from Moscow to Sverdlovsk, to Perm. And this is where the victory was made possible. Mm. So, and I got the... A job as a biologist, a zoologist, defended my uh, dissertation and published first articles. So it was all right about being a biologist. And I would call it very happy part of my life. <sighs> I had good colleagues. We were working on different biological theories and making observ field observations, collected 
material from field, and I traveled a lot during that time. I traveled across entire Ural from Yamal Peninsula in Tundra Zone, beyond Polar Circle to mm. Southern Ural. Mm. And even more, I traveled to Lower Volga River, Central Russia, in the, across Kazakhstan, like mm. Zaysan Lake, for example. It was close to border. And so it was a very good, productive time in my life. I published quite a few articles in zoology. And, um, but eventually it was kind of a stagnation because mm. I still received very small salary, minimal. But I married and had three kids. And eventually I decided to find a better job and moved to North Caucasus, the Cuban River, Kuban. Mm. It is a former Cossacks, Russian Cossacks, Kubanskie mm. Kazaki. And uh, enrolled in the college, new organized university in Krasnodar, and became associate professor, and I was teaching a few courses in biology, and uh, they gave me a good apartment in the city. So it was another part of my life, quite successful. But gradually I became uh, feeling pressure. I defended a, a PhD dissertation in Novosibirsk. And I worked hard to prepare that dissertation. And the defense was very difficult. Difficult because evidently um, there was an operation by KGB. It was time when Sakharov, physician, Russian famous physician, okay. became known worldwide because he challenged Communist Party rule. Mm. He is one of the creators of Russian H-bomb. Mm. You know, so he was extremely valuable, but he began expressing himself and realizing how dangerous it, it is to humanity, etc. So the Communist Party decided that all people who are suspicious, ideologically not quite in line and faithful, should be somehow retarded, stopped from progress. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, evidently, I got in that list. You were on the S list? Simply because I was talking to students and my colleagues, and some so, people probably. So because you were very educated and because you could speak to large groups of young people, because I, you made, you I made spoke them nervous? Too, too, too probably openly. And evidently I was on the list. So they decided. But what does that mean? Like, does that mean they could come and kill you? No. Or they're going to throw you in jail? No, no. At that time, it was the time in Stalin time, maybe they would, but it was already Brezhnev, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, you know, it's kind of mild. But they would not allow me to, to, to succeed with my scientific degree. They would stop, they would stop yes. your career yes. progress. So it, it, new and new people in the big meeting of scientists, because I was defending dissertation. They came up trying to, to topple me. But I fought hard and I answered any question. Mm. 
And my defense was lit, continued five hours. It was exhausting. I was on the, <laughs> I was in front of the public. You they were, were going eating snacks, going to restroom, but I was. <laughs> so you were being, you were like in an inquisition. You were being questioned for five hours. Yes, it was. Yes. So everybody thought it was over, but somebody came up and asked more questions. Mm. But I overcome any questions. Mm. Thank God. Uh, it was fine. And after all, voting came. And majority of scientists voted in favor. So I won. In favor of you? Yes, in favor of my dissertation to award me a wow. doctor's degree. Wow. So I became a doctor because majority voted in my favor. Mm. But it was, uh, the joy was premature because they have a, a higher office in Moscow appointed by the Communist Party and government which sorted all defended dissertations for approval. The approval trip was required. So all my materials were sent there, but they, they, it was a trick because at that time, they were, at least in our area, there were no printers like now. Mm. It was in in sixties, early sixties. Everything was on typewriter, so it was the first copy, of the fight, uh, typewriter, the second copy, and the third copy. So my dissertation was made in as a book. It looked like a book, and that top commission accepted only the first copy. And the problem is the first copy gone just disappeared, hmm. evaporated. So they had only two copies, second and the third, which is a little blurry, it is the same text. Hmm. But it was a law. So give us the first copy. Okay, so I went home, returned home, with mixed feelings, the first copy gone. I saw I should reproduce the first copy. The same pages, the same. So I found a woman who was very good at typewriter and asked her to make a copy. Of course, I paid her for the job. And he, he did it. Hmm. So I needed also to produce pictures, photographs, illustrations. Hmm. And they did all that. But it took almost half a year. Hmm. But during this half a year, they changed uh, people in that top commission for approval. They appointed people who would do just like what government tells them. Mm. And the decision was made not in my favor, of course. Mm. And they disapproved. So, because I defended successfully in Novosibirsk, where scientist community approved me, but here a bunch of officials in Moscow who may be not speci good specialists in my area, disapproved. So I became sort of mad. I decided something should be done. And my decision was to immigrate. Mm. So I applied for immigration. This is why you came to America? Yep. 
Wow. If not this, I probably stay there. Mm. If they would allow me to work, why not? I, I didn't like, uh, I didn't hate Russia. I, I have never been anti-Russian. But I didn't like uh, all this Communist Party. I never joined Communist Party. And KGB, Collective Farms, Gulags, whatever they attributed. Some horrifying stuff in there. I never liked it. My parents were com members of Communist Party from very old time. They remember Lenin and Stalin. I, I remember Stalin well because part of my life I was under Stalin. Mm. And so it, this is what happened which brought me to America with my family. My wife and two children, mm. now three children. Mm. And uh, here in America I had another challenge. Mm. And it was to find a job. Anyway, eventually I succeeded a little bit. Uh, Dr. Bremer from North Dakota State University uh, took, gave me a very small position for small salary. It is not even position, just so, sort of lab assistance. Mm. But at least I was in the college. And uh, a owner of the company in North Dakota ran a project for the state of North Dakota. It was named Inventory of Abandoned Coal Mines hmm. of North Western North Dakota because uh, plenty of old 30, 40 years old coal mines abandoned in Western North Dakota. It did created problem. The problem was uh, because it was old technology, and sometimes land collapsed. Mm. 30, 40 feet down, and you're surrounded by high walls of dirt. Uh, sinkholes. In the middle of, in the, yes, it likes, but no water. No water. Yes, down. Mm. And people, some farmers with tractors, and collapsed the soil and problem with cows. They lost cows this way. So they wanted to run inventory and do something on this matter. So I worked in a team of North Dakota young people, geologists, uh, and, and they took me like a wildlife biologist. But of course, when I came in America, I realized that I need to find a job there. So I had a lot of books, guides, manuals, and tried to learn about every single bird I see around. Be because in Russia I did, I knew this, but here I should know every bird just by sight, by voice. So and I had the one summer before that to learn, and I learned as much as I could. And one of, of the people in the team was a biologist too, and he knew birds better than me. So together we, he helped. Uh, so I made evaluation, everything, but identification, both of us tried. Mm. And after work, it was Vern Zink, the name of the person, mm. adventure, who funded it. So they gave me Ford Blazer, oh, sorry, Chevrolet Blazer, four-wheel drive, mm -hmm. and we traveled across Western North Dakota, 
it was the salary was minimal. I for don't remember maybe maybe ten thousand a year, mm. something like this. But we managed to live on that, and uh, we participated. And I came to uh, when the job was done, and the material was good, and I wrote an article and published it. But North Dakota nature lovers hated it. Mm. They were against me. Mm. Why? Uh, because my conclusion was that abandoned coal mines are helping to survive for wildlife. <laughs> because it was an agricultural desert. Sunflower, wheat, it is like desert. What kind of wildlife in the midst of wheat field? Yeah, it's a monocrop of farming, right? Yes. If you look from airplane, it is like everything is in squares. Okay. Absolutely. But coal mines were islands, not good for agriculture. So they overrun a few acres, sometimes 50, 100 acres. Overrun by shrubs and woods, a small lake, a spring, water body, and some hills. And what I found, coyotes, foxes live there. They make dens, nests. They Down in the mine? No, mine Just is... in the surrounding uh, Yes, the surrounding because area. it is the whole area yeah. available for them. It was exempt from plowing, anything. So, you know, so it was like when we were approaching next coal mines, it looked like island already. Green with hills, some diversity. Because North Dakota is flat, you know. Mm. So it, this is how it was. But uh, except Badlands, of course. Mm -hmm. Badlands is wonderful, of course. Mm -hmm. So we stopped at Medora and everything. And I loved the area and people there. Everything was wonderful. And nature. And uh, I would work there for, to see this day if I had a better job. But So it was another period of my biological activity mm -hmm. to cling to science somehow in uh, North Dakota. And in 2000, I retired. Nice. And this is how I live here. My son married a girl from here. So 20 years now here in Virginia. So total period in America is 42 years, mm. 43. Now, can we go back a little bit? Because what I am the most interested in is your time living with some Siberian native people and, ah, it is different. And that chapter of your life. And ah, who yeah. were these people? Um, were they hunters, trappers? Mm -hmm. You've got very involved with the Leica dogs. Um, let's hear all about that. Okay. How, how did you find your, who were these people you were with? Uh, it is again going back pretty long. Of course, I worked as a biologist, different projects, uh, but I had very broad interest in biology. And dogs were my favorites, always. Since my childhood, I liked dogs, and it was my dream to keep a dog. And uh, at that time, I didn't have my own Leica. By, but I had a, a small project and traveled to North Ural. It is Ivdel province. And uh, the friend uh, brought me to his uh, 
he, uh, he was Russian, but he brought me to local small, tiny minority. Uh, their language belongs to Finnish languages. Finnish? Finnish. Ugro-Finnish, Ugro yes. They would probably understand each other speaking. But, the, of course, they spoke Russian very well, but these people lived the, the way they lived for hundreds and thousands of years back. And they never had a high population. They lived in real wilderness. How they lived, they built a log cabin, and children, wife, all the family inside, dogs outside, a few sometimes reindeer too, and they live off land totally. They didn't need groceries, highways, hospitals, they lived just like the thousand years ago. Go hunting, you have squirrel, moose for meat, sable, margin for clothing, and Reindeer, too, for mattresses, very good, made of skin, reindeer. And uh, he brought me to a family like that. His name was Nikita, and last name Bakhtiyarov. <laughs> of course, they were uh, Christianized by Russians before communists, but uh, this Nikita Bakhtiyarov allowed me and my body to sleep on the floor. Of course, it was warm, comfortable, it's wooden floor. And we put reindeer skins, which are thick. It like mattress, actually. And, uh, and we were eating, feeding, and watching his life, and free to walk in nearby woods as we want. Uh, and, uh, according to that tradition, if you're guest, you have it all free. You don't pay for lodging, for eating, food, meat, it is all free. Only if you leave and take with you something for future, then you pay for that. It was their tradition. You're saying if you leave, if when you're departing, if you want some extra food, that then you pay for it. Yes, yes. If okay. you take with you some supply, you pay. But while leaving there, you have it all free. And this is why how I was able to to watch them. How long were you with these people? Uh, we lived almost a month. A month? Maybe a little less. If you, at least more, more than two, three weeks. Something like that. And uh, this is how I was watching Laika in its natural environment and way of life of these people. To them, hunting is not sport. Like for a Russian or American hunter who works hard in the city, goes to hunt, he wants game in his two, three, four days of vacation. But these people, it is for them like for us to go to grocery. It is everyday event. Uh, like I remember uh, we sitting in the morning, drinking tea, chatting, very good. And his dogs are barking. It is well heard. I just became alerted. Okay, they're barking at something. Let's go. And this, the Mansi guy, Nikita, said, no problem, let them bark. They will come closer. Okay. They bark louder, louder. It was a moose. And I don't know, either moose is stupid or dogs are super smart. But while barking and circling around the moose, they bring him closer and closer to the cabin. 
And it is, to him, it is nothing amazing. It is his life. Oh, it's time. He grabs the rifle and goes. The moose is short, dead. Meat, we have plenty of meat now, again. And uh, the, the philosophy is it is closer to, to home. No transportation, mm -hmm. knee deep and butt deep, for snow around, and you should transport that meat for storage. <laughs> so if, dog, if dogs are barking half a mile, or just 50 yards from your home, <laughs> it makes difference. Makes a major difference. Yes, yes. Uh, I haven't experienced that, but I've hiked out with a deer and that mm -hmm. is tiny and it's, and it's heavy. Yes. Now, um, were they trappers as well? No, at least this Mansi, typically they don't. Uh, in Russia, many people don't like trappers mm. because they put those traps, kill a lot of animals which no value to them, belong to wildlife. And they, many of them, drunkards. Drunkards? Yes, they, mm. they drink a lot and they just don't check their traps. Right. And the skin, the pelt is damaged, but they don't go to check if you put traps. Be careful, go and harvest what you trap, not just kill it. Yeah, the, the, the ethics, the ethos in America is you check every 24 hours. Yes, it, the, but any any reasonable hunter should know that. But So I ask just because I know like in the taiga, there is a, a tradition of the martin trappers and the sable trappers. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering if this family did yes. any of that. No, no, these guys hunt only with dogs. Just the the dogs. people you were with. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, this guy had like us, for example, his male was a major, his major dog. He, he went after the most valuable game, which is moose, because pile of meat, quality meat, bear, or sable. Mm -hmm. Sable is a fur producer, but it is like a gold nugget. The, the furs. Yes, because it is so expensive. Is, is it the same thing as a marten? It is related. The same family, the same similar way of life. But so it's it a is, weasel. But it is a little smaller, and it is... Okay. The pelt is more higher quality. Okay. And sometimes nearly the black, and that is considered darker, the pelt, the more valuable it is. And going back in history, in time of Ivan the Terrible, mm. it was it was the usual approach of the Tsar's government that all these pelts should belong to, the, to them. Mm. And that they encouraged hunters Natives, Russian frontiersmen, bring me the first. Mm. Because it was Tsar's gifts when they traveled Persian, Iran, uh, nobility, and uh, kings of Turkey, any neighbors, even France. What Russians brought? They brought pelts. It was like gold. It was absolutely tremendous it was money. It was the best gift they could yeah, give to And they pay money for good sable skin. Ivan the terrible type. They paid money enough to buy 50 acres land. One skin. One pelt. Is it's it, 50 acres of land. Yes, yes. If it is high quality. Therefore, I said it was like gold nugget. Therefore, drive of Russian adventurers to the east, mm. like in America, it was gold. 
with the and with uh, the beaver furs in America. Oh, in America, beaver, yes. It's so gold. similar in Russian history. Yes, but in Russia, it was uh, Martin, Sable, all these fur producers was absolutely magnet who took people in there. And natives did too. And they were in tremendous advantage against American Indians because Indians were isolated. Mm. They could do the same, but they didn't. But Siberian natives sold pelts to Russians and Chinese yes. to the south. So when I read Dursu the Trapper yes. about Vladimir yes. Arsenov, it yes. talks, I was surprised not knowing very much about that part of the yes. world. Yes. You know, <coughs> they're dealing with the Chinese all the time. They're selling oh, yes. antlers to the Chinese, ginseng to the Chinese, mm, yes, and this yes. is early 1900s. Yes. And natives needed to do that because it was trading, sometimes even without money. <coughs> what they need? Tea, tobacco, and munition. Powder, pellets, bullets, mm -hmm. and they got it. So it was harmony and trade thriving in the area. But closer to Moscow, of course, he could profit more because in, Amur, in the Amur River, Tsar is very far, <laughs> will not pay. But this is traditionally it. But what was lucky for the dog, Laika was instrumental in all these activities. To the Laika was dog which brought money, mm. like a good instrument. Mm. And they, they valued good dogs, really. And uh, there were a few varieties among local natives, not one, dozens of them actually. Any ethnic group across Siberia had their own style Laika in the old hunting, and the fur bearing was the prime importance. And uh, when I asked uh, Nikita how your dog knows what to hunt, he said he just go for the most valuable game, some economy in his brain. So he ignores squirrel. Oh, moose, it is. Mm. He goes, bear, all right. Sable, very welcome. Mm. But I said, but if you want squirrel. Okay, I called the dog, pointed the fresh truck in the snow. It tells him squirrel. He starts squirrel one, another one. No way. You're saying you went up to Nikiti, Nikito's dog, mm -hmm. you pointed at a squirrel track in the snow, and the dog went and treed squirrels? Yes. Wow. From this point on, this period at least, tomorrow he may not, but sure. if you remind him, okay, you have squirrel. Now, these dogs, I mean, they look like little wolves. Yes. They, they're incredible. So, you, so we'll get to it later, but you have, you started importing these dogs. But let's stay... Let's keep staying. So what else did you learn when you were with these, when, with Nikito and his family? Uh, Nikito. Okay. Um, like, okay. Like, like you started mentioning, well, we could stick to hunting, but you also mentioned superstition. Uh, like I would love to hear about <laughs> stuff like that. Okay. Now. I, I cannot explain superstition, but uh, at least I remember some of, of it. Uh, I cannot explain why, but for example, they, the, they have certain, it was not a private property uh, because he hunts in a certain area. But for example, what we see here, over that ridge, I hunt to that ridge. It is, it is respected. And another Mansi family hunter lives behind that ridge and he has some plot. And because before the, these people were disturbed by civilization, uh, they had a whole system. Uh, for example, 
without much word communication, no cell phones, anything. If it was a rule, if it is a small game, you limit yourself with your area. If it is a big game like moose, it doesn't recognize borders. It goes like train. Uh, you have right to, to kill moose on his property if you start it on yours and finished on his property, okay. But they make different signs that I was here and he knows who was here. For example, he made a bonfire. So everybody uh, using certain pattern to show if the guy will come, see bonfire, okay. He see two sticks laying like that. And he left. Oh, this is Nikita. I know. Him. Oh, so the the leaving a little sign to yes, say yes. which hunter is in oh, which yes. area. Oh, this way or some other way. So what you're doing with your hands is you're showing like sticks crossed or sticks in a little pattern. Yes, they yes. say who is there. Yes, and it do, tells it tells every other manchi in the large area, maybe hundred thousand square miles, mm. who was there. So they have a lot of so methods of communication without. Uh, words or special things. Now, Mansi are the name of the people. The Mansi. Yes, Mansi, Mansi. Uh, in the in the past, in the pre before revolution, they were called vo uh, Voguls. Voguls. Vogul. Voguli. Hmm. Voguls. Now, were they wearing traditional clothes or were they wearing modern clothes? Uh, they, th these are people who lived there for hundred thousand years. Hmm. I don't know, maybe anthropologists know where it came from, maybe from south, maybe, but they established their life there. Mm. And, uh, for example, the land is huge. The distances are enormous. And Mansi Hunter chasing moose or something, he could be physically fit. Mm. And they used skis uh, padded with moose mm. skin from legs. They brought skis to run on snow with and the hair directed back so they would slide easy forward but not so good backward it's kind of a little bit of a break yes the yes. hairs are facing backwards so it catches so he has a small hatchet a knife and the rifle and a very small backpack and goes hunting and uh, it, this method of walking on the snow and mountains is very efficient much better than those snow uh, shoes people use in America or Indians eat. Uh, very fast because he's sliding downhill like sportsman, very mm. quick. Mm. And he going uphill, very easy. Mm. So it is very good thing. And uh, in his big land, usually he builds more than one cabin. More than one cabin. Yes, like my friend and me who needed to travel to some place where we couldn't make in one day. And he said, I have a cabin there. And we knew. And of course, we already knew from him that in that cabin, everything is ready. Mm. Everything is ready. Uh, deer skins hanging nearby, which are not snow doesn't stick to deer skin, reindeer. You just shake it, it drops. So it is your blanket and mattress. Mm. And he has a wooden shelves, scaffolds inside the cabin. And the stove is full of dry, good firewood. Mm. And uh, 
matches are hidden here too, dry and ready. Mm. So what you need to do, just start fire, it becomes warm. So if the it is done like safety system, because if the hunter chasing moose, it is hard work. It is not kind of leisure and entertainment. It is his way of life. It mm. is his, like we go to grocery, mm -hmm. he goes in taiga. Now, are the So you start fire, you melt snow, make tea, take your snacks out of your backpack, okay? And they have even threads and needle there if you need to fix up something. So a lot of little things around. To fix your clothes. Yes, but one rule, it is like a law. When you leave, make the same. Leave it, you didn't finish those things, leave the rest one. Make firewood, fill the stove, put the matches. So just when you leave, like you will not be here. So it doesn't. So you might, because you might be saving someone's life if they're yes, lost down yes, in the woods. Yes, yes, yes. And other manzi would love you to do if you go over that ridge. Use your cabin too, but do the same when you leave. Mm -hmm. So back, pay back the compliment. Now, can you describe how the dogs would work on a moose or on a bear? Like they. The person listening to this podcast might not know very much about dog hunting with dogs. Can mm -hmm. you just describe, like, I'm, I'm assuming the dogs would bay it? Would yes. there be, like, five dogs, one dog? How would okay. it work? Okay, uh, actually, two dogs is three, do maximum three. Two dogs is enough. And Mansi don't keep many dogs uh, per family. Three, five dogs is typical. But it doesn't mean he will take all of them with him. He may take more, it depends. Oh, my, because his other member family members, all the children, his wife, even grandmother hunting, she has a rifle, and has a little, one of the dogs, she, she, she shoots squirrels, and she is maybe 60 years old, she takes rifle and goes hunting, killing squirrels, and if night catches her in the middle of nowhere, she makes a bonfire and sleeping there. Very much like Indians in old America. You're saying the old granny is not only a hunter, but she'll just sleep out. Next a to a lot fire of them are the hunters. Yeah, actually, all hunters, because it is a sin not to pick something for the family. When berries, nuts, they collect nuts, they pick berries. This is what the life is built on. Mm. So, but they don't like uh, in Russian civilization advancing when tourists are coming from city they have trips and and they come in groups sometimes they're quite educated people but they're ignorant about Mansi tradition mm. if they find a cabin oh this is good they drink beer play guitar mm. and scattered garbage around and leave Mm. never caring what they left behind. <laughs> Don't give it mind. This is why they hate them. This is the Mansi hate the tourists. Yes, and <laughs> Mansi told me that when they hear these footprints of sneakers on the snow, oh my God, it is a bad sign. They're tracking the tourists. <laughs> yes, they don't like them. They don't kill them like Indians would maybe in the past <laughs> time. But they, they don't make them happy. Sure. So yes. describe the Laika as working a uh, moose or a bear. Okay. Uh, Laika is a very peculiar dog because its behavior 
drastically changes depending on the game. Somehow in instinct, it is exactly, it doesn't take training. You cannot teach it. Dog does it or it doesn't. It's like in ballet, talent and no talent. All right. And when moose, uh, many other dogs would chase moose, no problem. Take German Shepherd, Ooh, he will go in the moose. But he will not shoot it because moose will run from the German Shepherd like train. 50 miles in one leg, oh, try to follow without vehicle. But like a task is to stop moose as close as possible to you. And as quick as possible. Therefore, like a seeing moose never goes head on. It always go on the circle. Like moose is here, dog is going this way. It's not very aggressively, just wagging tail like good friend. Hello, mm -hmm. hello. Goes around and the moose looks at it, shakes its head and keep browsing. But suddenly it takes off trying to gore the dog and kill with hoofs. And moose can kill very easy. The dog should be agile and attentive. Then dogs burst barking. Okay, so moose keep browsing. Like a barks again, but squealing with brakes, like kind of not choppy, aggressive. So listening to the voice, Mansi already knows this is moose because barking style. It is not squirrel, not sable. So the 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 Leica barks in a different tone, he, he is, and the hunter knows what's he, happening. Yes, he knows exactly, and he shows up. Of course, he takes into account the wind direction because when moose smells the hunter, he will not stay here. He will go. Mm -hmm. Then you should use another chance walking maybe 20, 30 miles. Mm. <clears throat> so he approaches carefully. <clears throat> he makes sure shot. This is how the hunting is done. Mm. And uh, uh, Laika is, looks very relaxed with moose. I watched it myself in binocular, myself. I thought, oh my God, she's hunting. And then silence. I see she's peeing, marking, scent marking. Mm. In this area where the moose is browsing, uh, she makes message to other dogs. I was here, <laughs> peeing in the snow. <laughs> it, it, it seems to be excited that it's hunting. No, but this is how it works. And moose doesn't run. No way. And she, the hunter still, the dog holds moose. Mm. It doesn't mean holds by the skin. Or, mm. It holds by his bluffing, drink. Uh, tricky behavior. <laughs> mm. And some like us are excellent moose dogs, some are not. And uh, sometimes they do different. For example, uh, uh, the moose runs, but he, the moose does, is runs from the dog, but he doesn't know where you are. And the moose runs toward you. Mm. Oh, just shoot it right now. Mm. It happens too. But one way or another, uh, like uh, is their first grade dog for moose hunting. Absolutely natural. And Mansi test their dogs. They raise many puppies, take them to hunt and see, okay, this dog is worthless for moose, but good for squirrel, okay. Um, this is usually bear, sable, and moose. It is money. Bear, sable, moose. Yes, money and product, of course, value. And historically, they didn't hunt bear. But how it happened that they, like I became bear dog. 
the bear was their neighbor and deity, actually. It was a deity, a god. Yes, it is sort of deity. And killing bear, they were done when some bear accustomed to kill people. The, the bears were killing people. Some maybe old or injured bear became accustomed to come up and damage, breakthrough in your cabin, do havoc there and kill people if possible. So this bear should be killed. But they make the whole process of prayers mm. to their gods to forgive them that bear should be killed. And then they gather together and go hunting bear. Now, was this before guns with like spears? Yeah, before guns. It actually it started when people used spears and bow and arrow. Mm. Laika was there doing the same. But how to live in a country where bears is your, on the, near your kitchen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but because uh, not only men, like uh, they, sometimes they keep a cow for milk, they make hay, pick nuts, collect berries. Mm -hmm. It is good, vitamins, it is valuable. All right, but bears around. So uh, a woman, children, take a like with them. They pick berries. Oh, Laika is barking. Bear is close. Mm. And bear forgets about them because Laika is biting in the butt and barking and swirling around, mm. giving him a hard time. So Now, are their bears a little bit more aggressive than our black bears right here? No, they're aggressive. Brown bear is aggressive. That's what they have there? More aggressive, yes. Okay, so it's like our grizzlies here. Yes, it's the same species, actually. So you're saying most Mansi people always have a dog with them just to let them, to for protection? Yes, oh, yes it is. They, it, the life is impossible, I would figure out, in that area. Just, I cannot imagine, because it is everywhere. And what happens... Uh, the woman and children, oh, they know this is bear. Let's go home now. They leave, and Laika will catch up with them later. But it, it draws attention on herself. And they valued dogs which do it. But when hunting came, Russians came, they tell them, okay, I need bear skin. Give me bear skin. I pay you money. They started killing them. Mm -hmm. But the Laikas were available right here. In, because they always like dog which were not afraid of bear. And when the dog, uh, kind of city dog, seeing bear, he will run towards your feet, mm -hmm. tail between legs, and it will draw bear towards you. It will be bait. Bear will both you and the dog. But Laika has again in the brain how to do. It is always on the opposite side from you against bear, but on the opposite side. Because his job is to draw attention from you on herself, on the dog. So the bear turns his butt towards you instead of killing you. Mm. So it gives you time. Go home. Go, go away. Do something. Or load your gun, whatever. Because you have time. And the dog gives it to you. And the Laika avoids to be caught. But if bear is grabbing you, the dog will put his line on the line. He'll fight the, to the end. Oh, yes. They will grab bear, try to shake it, or a few dogs to save your mm. skin. And all this is inborn in, 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 the, in the brain of the dog. Mm. And so it is different behavior. And, and bear is bark. It is aggressive, choppy. 
and the dog sometimes squealing like it was caught, but it, was, it tells Hunter that the bear is chasing dog this time. Mm. And she lets you know of distance what is going on. Mm. And they can read voice uh, behavior of their dog. So mm. Manzi doesn't see what is going on. But he listens and he reads what is going on. He said, bear, okay, bear. This is sable. This is moose. So well, it, you hear that even with like the Appalachian bear hound hunters, they know by the sound of the voice what's yes. happening. Yes, 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 yes. Dogs are amazing creatures. Yes, I, I agree. And uh, so it is very specific. And it lasted probably some from time immemorable oh, when yeah. these people moved in the area and began keeping these dogs and selecting for hunting abilities. Did you learn anything else about their religious beliefs other than uh, the, the bear not god? Not much. Uh, I know, for example, that uh, a woman is not supposed to climb on the roof of the house. What's the world? I don't know, but this is what they believe. That's one of their superstitions. It is prohibited, yes, because she will make the house dirty. Why? <laughs> How? I don't know, but had they so were the Mansi Christianized? Yes, they were Christianized, but of course they retained. There are no churches around, but mm. <coughs> they learned language. The Russian language is archaic too. It contains a lot of words, which are, for example, a gun. In Russian, it is vintovka, ruzhyo, shotgun. But in their language, it is pistol, mm. because in. In old time, hundreds of years, when Russians brought them this thing, it was called in Russian pistol. Mm. Okay, pistol. Or afraid, for example. The word afraid, for example. Oh, the bear scared me, afraid, run away. But they used words, Russian words, which sound, I would say, derogatory, very uh, not not good for high society. Hmm. This, uh, they will tell Abbasranse. It means pooped in his pants, a hmm. fear. Shit his pants. Yes, yes. Hmm. And in Russian, <laughs> they got it from Russian, from Russian Kazakhs who were not refined people, hmm. like conquistadors. Hmm. <laughs> they came there to Mansi and they learned language from them. <laughs> Now yeah. talk about um, when you did the interview with the gentleman who had the treeing dog uh, podcast. I forgot the exact title. Yeah, but you did a podcast talking a little bit about this. Uh, um, you talked a lot about how the Mansi, how did they treat their dogs? I think that's fascinating. Oh, okay. Because it's a little, it's a little rough. Yes, it is. Maybe rough, maybe not, but practical for mm. sure. Uh, I don't know how about I would not speak for all Mansi. But that family I we was with, uh, they didn't allow dogs inside at all. They they fed them periodically. They do, would not allow dog to starve to death, but not very funny. Like uh, every other day, one day dogs gets half pound of meat, something not wanted by people like lungs or uh, throat or what they not valued most scraps. Yes, uh, but every other day, at the rest, the dog is on his own. He can catch mice, lemming, something, scavenge, whatever he can. Of course, when hunting successful, like if they kill moose, 
uh, it is a pile of guts and left behind. Dogs will not leave it alone. So dogs don't come home for a day or two because they will feast on it. Till next time. <laughs> they feast on the gut pile. The, whatever good. Uh, they protect it from uh, wolverines and uh, other animals. Wolverine is common there. Wolverine, yeah, those are amazing. Wolverine, yes. Wolverine is common. And uh, they don't like it very much. Mm. It, 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 when feeding dogs, for example, on the trip, hunting trip, in another cabin, he has meat for dogs, uh, but he has three dogs. And he will feed them in a sequence, in a certain sequence. Because dogs have picking order among mm -hmm. themselves. And Mansi knows it. So he feeds the strongest major dog first, giving him a good chunk of meat. Okay, then second by the rank, ranking. And the last one is the last. Okay. Mm. No violation. If he will give it to a weaker one, uh, the major dog will take it from him through fighting. There will be fight right now. Ooh, squealing. The dog will run away. He'll get me. Why to do that? Why not to feed them according to the doggy law? Okay? No fight. Everything is fine. Mm. And if impatient, lower-ranking dog would try to grab first, Mansi would probably give it a good kick. So mm. Wait your turn. Mm. So peace among dogs, practical and quiet. Mm. Everybody is happy. So they don't go to look for uh, a dog trainer or psychologist. Like now, now, one of the craziest things you said on the other podcast was if some of the dogs didn't turn out to be good hunters, talk, you said uh, uh, what yes. they would do with them. Yes, uh, they will not want it. They will not feed it simply if it doesn't good for nothing or shoot it to make moccasins. To make moccasins. Moccasins, yes. They That's make, what I was getting at. You're saying they'll, yes, they'll make fur products yes. with it, the dogs. When looking at the months, you see a lot of things made of dog skin. Uh, I know how the skins came from from naturally dead, dead, dead old dogs or because it was not wanted. Or you see mittens, mm. yeah. moccasins too. Mm. So Mittens no. and moccasins made from the dog first. Oh, very often, yes, yes. Mm. They, they use any skins of any animals mm. because they don't have, as I said, uh, groceries, of course. any clothes, or like we surround it. Everything make, yeah. you see, it is taken from nature. Mm -hmm. So it would be very stupid if dog died and bury it with honor. They use skin. Right, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. You need to use the stuff. Yes, they exactly. use. Exactly. Now, we're... Um, were, I've seen some stuff about like the reindeer herders. Is that a totally different kind of people? And uh, did you have any experience with the reindeer herders? Yes, a little bit. Yes, actually, there is no uh, the sharp border between reindeer keepers and hunters. They're mm. all are hunters, and if possible, they're reindeer keepers too. Mm. And if further to the south, you're even cow keepers because they want milk. Mm. And that Mansi, I, I, we lived in, he had about five deer, mm. reindeer. But he said it is not very 
profitable and are they tied up or are they in a no they're wondering area? eating lichens hanging from trees because the best environment is tundra because they find good pasture but deep in forest they sh- they should deer needs reindeer needs lichens mm. which is a symbiotic organism you know mm-hmm. algae and mushroom so that's from trees hanging on trees and on trunks good for them and um, I saw them, but I didn't notice they were important. But this is how he had skins. Uh, reindeer skins are always shedding hair mm. because they are very breakable. Mm. The hair of reindeer is full of hair, air, which makes in, in, improves its insulating properties. It is thick, very springy. If you put it on the floor, it is like rub uh, foam. Very nice. You wow. can just lay it. It's pleasant feeling. Mm. And you use it as a blanket mm. and use it as a mattress. Mm. So it is always available. But only for cabins, for outside, usually inside. But they're very clean people, by the way. Inside the table on which they eat and prepare food is made of wood boards, just wooden boards. Mm. And there's the, the woman is scraping it with knife mm. every one or two days upper layer of the wood is scraped off together with all grease and dirt whatever so it always looks mint clean mm. and they keep beaver glands mm. those beaver glands you know the old castor glands yes 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 they keep it hanging at the count because it is in the what i'm sorry in the what dry Hanging in the what? On the ceiling somewhere. On the ceiling, okay. Because it is producing pleasant smell. Yes, the castor. And when you enter the, house, the cabin, you feel clean and smells good. You're saying their air freshener is a beaver caster? <laughs> yes. Wow! I they, do a little bit of beaver trapping. How do they get the beaver? Do they shoot them or do they trap them? Uh, yes, they do both ways. And they must, obviously, they keep the pelts and all that stuff. Yes. It was the one... Interesting case when I was li- living in Europe. Uh, a good, noted Russian wildlife biologist was sent to northern Ural, to Mansi, to find where beavers still exist mm. because they had government money p- for protection beaver. <laughs> so they wanted to establish to enforce protection so the beaver would rebound. Mm-hmm. And the guy was good scientist and he knew local customs, but he got in trouble. I, I never visited those Mansi, but he visited and the Mansi was frightened because they looked at them like aliens, like, like Indians looked at whites, you know. Mm. Uh, they're nice, but better not to mess with them. But in their religion, unlike Indians, they had a shall not to kill law. In Mansi Gentile religion, uh, shall not to kill. You cannot kill human. It is super sin, absolutely un- not permissible. So that Mansi came to his buddies around and discussed what we can going to do with this guy. Of course, it would be practical to kill him. But they have law, religion. So they decided to bring him deep in taiga and get lost. 
he'll die on his own. And the man says, I will show you where the beaver is. And they walked. They crossed rivers, creeks, ridges, and they walked. And they walked. And one morning, the guy woke up. The bonfire's here, but his guide gone. Nowhere around. So he was with minimal supply. Even matches gone. But he had was a good experience. He had an extra pocket in the shoe with box of matches. So this is what he had because of his good own tradition. The guy gone, that's it. And he doesn't know where to go, indeed, because it was the man he knew what he did. He took him to place no return. So what to do? He managed to make bonfire because uh, what was available, it was snow around and branches, and sticks were in good supply. And he burned fire in the daytime for flame, uh, sorry, at night for flame, and the daytime for smoke. So the smoke would be visible. He knew they will send rescue squad to find him. And, uh, but he ne had nothing to eat. But what saved him he managed, using a rock, to kill a jay bird. And, of course, he ate it carefully. And he suffered, he waited. Eventually, they found him, because they saw the smoke. And so they returned him home, and it was a story in local newspapers, home, incredible survivor. But it was incredible. Now, so were the had the Mansi never seen like a European, like a European Russian? No, before? no, probably the, these people do not exist. So they were scared. They had never seen someone like no, that. No, no, they all know about Russians. Maybe it was time in the past, but not now. Now they. So all, why why did they try to? They just didn't like him. They didn't know what he was up to. Uh, I don't know. In other people, the Hanty, because Hanty related to Mansi ethnically, in language, but hunting further to the north, and they, they're hunters too, and they keep reindeer. And among those, uh, they're not, some are not friendly, uh, at least it's from my experience. But it was, I understand, long ago, what I'm talking about, it was 60s. Uh, I saw them, they don't want to speak Russian. They pretend they don't know. People say, oh, they know Russian. They don't talk to you. Maybe, I don't know. And I saw their cabins like Indian teepees. I have one really? picture. And they, those were called the Hunty people? They, they, they're Hunty, but it is H, I would spell it like this, H-U-N-T-Y. Okay, Hunty. <laughs> hunty. It is not because they're hunting. It is just yeah. word. Mm -hmm. Just like Mansi. Wagul. Hanty were called Ostyaks in old Russia. They were Ostyaks. Where you were with the the Mansi, is this considered the taiga? 
Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Wilderness. Right. And so the taiga is enormous, right? Oh, yes. It stretches like from east, almost the east, all the yes, way to the west. Yes. Now, did you ever find your... So I'd mentioned in the beginning of this conversation how much I loved Dursu the Trapper, mm-hmm. that book. Another book that I read in the past few years that was incredible was called The Tiger. It's by um, John Va- Valiant, and it is about the Amur tigers, the Siberian tigers uh-huh. in the far, far east um, in Primoria. Primoria? Yeah, Did, have you? Were you ever in some of these tiger areas? Yes, uh, but it was not in my biological research expedition. Okay. It was an attempt to find it a better job. <laughs> okay. I traveled, I flew to Vladivostok. They developed a new uh, branch of science uh, academy uh, based in Vladivostok. And I came with a few other people who were claimed for some positions in that. And I flew there by airplane, 12 hours of flight. Mm. Uh, but when being there, uh, local scientists decided to entertain us and show tigers or maybe trucks wild, free. Mm. So they took us in, in Taiga. It was winter time. Snow was knee deep, mm. pretty good blanket of snow. And they introduced us to a local wizard who was a Russian frontiersman. A, Did you say local wizard? Who, who kind of local wizard of a wizard? Like a shaman? No, but just experienced man. Okay, okay. No, he was not a shaman, but he knew local people and everything. And he took us in the forest and he showed us a pile of guts in the snow. Oh, this is tiger. A female lives in this area. We saw footprints of snow, huge, very impressive. And he said when tiger kills wild boar, they eat mainly wild boar there. He is fastidious and opens belly, takes guts with its content, pulls away, and then eat clean meat. He guts it. He does the tiger does the gutting. No, no. He throws it out. He eats meat. That's what I'm saying. It guts it like a person. It guts it and then eats the clean meat. Yes. So I've read like he takes a bunch of this and pulls it away a few steps. Drops in the snow for wolves. Like a or, person. Huh? Like a person. Yes, it's interesting. And uh, uh, he said uh, about his experience with tiger, and he said to be with the dog in presence of tiger is almost impossible because dog will be attracted to tiger. He, where tiger is, no wolves, mm. at least Siberian tiger, because he will not tolerate presence of wolf in his hunting range. He will not let him to eat, to hunt. He will follow his steps everywhere, day after day, after hour, everywhere. So the wolf has two choices, either to get killed or go away beyond his range. Incredible. The tiger will kill every wolf. Yes. And he does the same with dog. With dog, he will follow your dog. But the dog is with you. So you're in jeopardy. So you don't have a and, dog if you're in the tiger he t- woods. He tells the story when he walked, led his dog on the leash because he knew tiger may do that. And what happened? He was attacked by tiger. But 
the tiger grabbed the dog, killed and ran away. He didn't touch him. The target was dog. Oh my! And he was it, frightened very much. And uh, another occasion, he said, "He stayed." He said, but he sounded trustworthy, like it was a local man. He said he was hunting with two Lycas. But he knew tiger is somewhat around here. And he made a kind of temporary station, a bonfire on a rock ledge. It was a flat kind of plateau rock with abrupt abyss on one side. And the tiger jumped at them. And they all, with dogs, then were swept from the ledge and fell down, but safely, because of a layer of dead leaves there, which softened the grounding. So when they fell, they fell, oh, the tiger was somewhere far away. <laughs> so they had time, both dogs, and he was like, okay, all right. I, I've read like three books about man-eating tigers in India, and then in uh, Nepal, and then, of course, the Amur tiger in, in... Oh, yes, it is predator. It, it is scary. Of course, a lot of stories maybe sound, maybe of exaggeration. Mm. For example, uh, they told a story like a Siberian train stopped in the middle of nowhere, and someone wanted to go to a restroom. He never came back. They believed tiger grabbed him. I didn't know. <laughs> wow. the, the similar stories are told in, in Florida about alligators. Mm. Like one told the guy was sitting in a motorboat on the back and on the front, two guys were chatting, then look, that one gone. Mm. Because alligator grabbed him. Mm. <laughs> I don't know whether believe it or not. <laughs> I don't know either. A lot of stories, but what I told you was probably real so you never but you never have seen one no no so they made that for us uh, an excursion to show and we enjoyed seeing footprints and the guts of that mm. pig and they told that he, tiger doesn't like even deer he wants pig mm. <laughs> wild boar god that wild boar natural there there mm. They exist a long time, and local like us, good for hunting wild boar. Mm. East, those are East European. Oh, sorry, East Siberian like mm. East Siberian. is slightly bigger than... But these dogs will go after boar, too. Now, when you were in these areas, did you ever hear anything about ginseng? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> it is uh, full of controversies, at least in Russia. Mm. A lot of people believe... Uh, in its medicinal qualities. Mm. Raise it and sell expensive. So some began raising them on purpose because it's good money. But others tell when grown in by human, it is not medicinal. Even exactly wild pig, maybe. And uh, it can be purchased and used, but some believe it is all fantasy. Mm. I don't know. I, Americans scientists believe it is worthless. Uh, I don't think that. At least I was reading it. But in Siberia and in China, oh, it is a big deal. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so the book I mentioned mm -hmm. called The Tiger, they mm -hmm. talk a lot about just like the poaching out there mm -hmm. because tigers will be poached for 
the parts the, and so it would oh, bear yes, for yes. the Chinese medicine, oh, yes, Eastern yes. medicine market, black market, because it's totally yes. illegal. Yes, it is, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but interesting, uh, at least I noticed some information that Chinese trying to reestablish Tiger on, on their side of the Amur River. Oh, okay. It would be wonderful if they would do. Mm -hmm. But how they will protect them, I don't know. What. <laughs> I don't know, it is interesting. Of course, it is a fascinating animal. Mm. If I were there, I would pay money and work to save them. Mm. It would be incredible yes. just to see one in the wild. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of seeing, so in one of the books I read, they talked about that part of Siberia being very much like the backwoods of Appalachia, so mm -hmm. here, mixed with the ruggedness of the Yukon yes. of Alaska. Yes, So yes. it's like Alaska, but also similar to here. here yes, in, yes. The idea of seeing a tiger in this mm -hmm. landscape is so stunning to me. Like <laughs> I, I, it would be a highlight, a goal for my life to be able to one day go there and be able to do anyway, one of those tracking. Yes, it is interesting, and uh, a lot of local people are quite agreeable. They're concerned to, to save tiger, but but some people want it for money because, like uh, when I worked in Oklahoma State University, I had a student from Pakistan. And he knew about Kashmir. Mm. They have tigers there. And he told me that those tigers are probably doomed because big money. Mm. Because killing tiger it brings you sixty, eighty thousand mm. dollars. He said many people would kill a human for this money. Mm. But this is tiger. <laughs> mm. I don't know how much money, but Russians do some efforts to protect them. Yes. <laughs> it is it is critical, mm. and Chinese medicine is to blame. <laughs> really, it really is. I mean, with the rhino parts in Africa. Everything is medicinal in the tiger. Do you want to pick that up? You can pick it up. I might don't. Okay. Um, well, I guess maybe to kind of end, why don't we talk a little bit about your Leicas? Were you the first person in America to bring these dogs over? Yes, I, I think so. I don't know, maybe some diplomats. So when you were with the Mansi, you just fell in love with these dogs? Uh, yes, I became better familiar with them, yes. And uh, I knew I had friends who were hunting with Laika, but I lived in the city. I was a postgraduate student living in the city, big home on the fifth floor, you know. Couldn't keep Laika there. Mm. <clears throat> but I would like to, but it was unfeasible but then I became more familiar with these dogs, which their capabilities in interaction with humans and game, like you told about that monkey living in a cabin and dogs barking far away, and mm. he treated them. <laughs> I would like city hunter, oh yes, let's go and kill it. Mm. No, it, to him, he, a lot of things like this. Uh, seeing, uh, a bear in the grass, tall grass, like a barking. Bear is here, stands up. Mansi doesn't shoot. Okay, because like a present, bear walks away, Mansi walks away. Why you didn't shoot it? And his answer is, did you see grass? Grass is tall. Bear can see dog very well. The dog doesn't see bear well. My dog can be killed. And his dog is precious because he is a good hunter. I killed another bear because to him it is a big deal. 
Let's go, another bear will be convenient. He will kill. So it is their attitude. Do they eat the bear? Oh, yes. Of course. I, I have some meat now, but black bear. Black bear. Yeah, yeah. I have some meat, I too. I like it. It's wonderful. I have some from some of the houndsmen, yes, from my hound's friends. The fat is good, yes. Oh, yeah. We've been using it on our skin. Yes. In our hair. The famous, mm. uh, you know, the Native Americans would use it on their skin and hair. Yes, yes. And the Manchi always have bear fat in, in jars and stored for... They don't use any vegetable oil. They use bear. The bear grease. Yes, and they... Fry and roast everything with that meat, fat, very good. Mm. It doesn't get rancid quickly, but in winter it is like a refrigerator just beyond the door. <laughs> now, did they build a, um, like I've seen on some TV shows, some survival shows, did they did they build like an outdoor structure to, to hang oh, yes, the meat yes, to yes. keep the bears and yes, the wolverines yes. out? Yes, it is their kind of storage construction. They call it somia in their language. Somya. Uh, it is actually a tiny bitty log cabin made of logs, but on scaffolds mm. and pretty high, much higher than normal roof. And you should climb there. Mm. And they don't put a normal ladder, but a big log mm. with notches. Mm. So you could walk there. Mm. So it is no handrails. It takes some physical fitness. So you climb there, and they store meat and pelts and skin because of wolverine. The wolverine. Wolverine, yes. Mm -hmm. Do they salt the meat, or they just leave it up there? No, no salt. They is it hanging? Salt. Is it hanging? Or is it just Both. piled? It is laying on, on, on shelves and hanging, hanging too, yes. And when, when I looked at that meat, it was didn't look like meat. It was coated with ice. Mm. It looked like plastic, but it was ice. What he does, because the uh, meat exposed to the air gets freezer burnt, you know. Okay. It happens naturally too. So he takes uh, some water bucket, fresh snow, and slapping with water and snow mixture, covers all the meat. So it's covered with ice. So he purposely covers yes. the meat with ice to protect For it. For preservation, it is Incredible. fresh meat, fresh, good meat. He wants to feed you, feed the family. He comes, he tears off some ice, cuts as much as he needs, takes home the rest, is covered, or he may cover it again. Hmm. So the very intelligent uh, method of preservation from baking, become rancid or very nice, very fresh. Of course, there are people who are familiar with starvation because it is natural cycles and good to bad luck at hunting. Mm. So they probably would eat meat which smells, which you wouldn't want it. Right. But they already know their capabilities, possibilities, and mm. adjust to the limit, natural limits. And they call it somya. The, somya. Uh, they do, it protects from beer too because it is not as easy for beer without good support from beneath to break the walls or anything mm. and commotion attract dogs and himself to protect and Wolverine the same will get stuck with this it is mm. not easy but he does it would they eat the Wolverine if they ever killed one? no okay at least normally they don't okay but they would eat probably other animals like squirrel sure black grouse is there too uh, they eat 
I, mushrooms, I didn't know. I didn't notice, but they eat berries, nuts. Mm. One thing I'm interested in is like folk medicine. Does there anything, did they use herbs or was there anything that they used for, that they, you were aware of? They probably do, but. You I, weren't there long I enough. didn't touch it in my presence, during my presence. During time. your time there. My grandmother from, was a kind of medicine woman from village in Belarusia. It is really? It is totally different. Let me hear about it. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, I, I remember her probably the oldest age. I was about 14, 13 years old, 15. But we were living in very far from big cities. And my sister and me, when we were ill, my mother usually asked her to help. And she collected different grasses and weeds. And around our stove and the wall, there were always dry berries, little bags, like strawberries, blueberries, dry, and different grasses. And she used names for those grasses, which I later found was scientific, despite she was illiterate. Mm. Uh, but my mother told me she learned it from medicine man in the village, mm. whose name was Gurchinsky, mm. Mr. Gurchinsky. <laughs> it was ridiculous. So your grandmother was, an, today we'd say an herbalist. That's uh, how we would say it. Well, oh, we, yes, she was quite knowledgeable. Mm. She was a true believer. She was devoted Christian, Orthodox Christian. She always had a corner with icon and wax candles burning on holidays, and she mm. was praying. But we were growing in communist time, and the, we were all told in schools that there is no such a thing as God. And my sister and me attempted to, to mock my grandmother. Mm. But my mom prosecuted it severely. Don't touch her, that's it. But my mom was, my mom was a member of Communist Party, but it was a survival, you know. Mm. <coughs> like, you never have your president portrait in your living room. No. Okay. But in Russia, we had Stalin's portrait in the living room. Instead of, picture, instead of a picture of Jesus or Buddha? Yes, yes. Not mm. because we loved Stalin so much, but it was for survival. My, my dad was a boss, Communist Party official boss. And if somebody will come see this portrait, he cannot report on us that we are maybe not very devoted enough or what. Yeah, so you're hanging this image so that you're letting other people know that you're not doing anything wrong. Uh, yes, at least it, it was extra proof. Proof, right. Or maybe a KGB or agent would be sent to us. Mm. Look around. Do they have portrait of our beloved leader? It's dark. It is very much like North Korea today. Sure. Very much, yes. Do you believe in God? I'm atheistic. You're what? I'm Honestly, I'm atheistic. Agnostic. Agnostic. Okay, yes. you're not sure. You don't know. Maybe no, yes, no. maybe I no. Don't, I don't fight religion at all. No. Because uh, there is no scientific mm. evidence. You cannot prove negative. Mm. But 
but I, I respect people who are religious, but mm. not like uh, Allah Akbar and boom, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't like those. It's interesting that the it's interesting that the Communist Party would um, one thing one of their tactics would be to not allow people to worship a divinity. That's fascinating. Yes, uh, you know, in in my knowledge, they invented like a new religion. The yes. communist system is actually like a religion. Right. But no room for two religions. So right. any other religion is prosecuted 